The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Welcome, family, to Walking Through the Big Book with your co-host, the Monty Man, and Chris Schroeder, all the way from the East Coast. Via internet and telephone and all those marvelous uh, new stuff that we are able to tap into these days. And so grateful to be able to do that. Chris, how are you doing there, my friend? I'm doing great today, Monty. Uh, everything is going real well over here on the East Coast. The, the birds are singing on key and the, the, the leaves are waving properly. Did you know the wind blows because the leaves and the trees are waving? <laughs> It's true. <laughs> uh, that's a good image. That's a good image. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, once again, folks, we're so glad that you're with us. Our email address, by the way, is take12radio at comcast.net. And uh, if you're on the uh, page, unless you're listening on an MP3 player or a burnt CD or something like that, if you're on the page on the web- main website here, you will notice that there are several uh, player buttons um, prior to this one. I think this is uh, show 30. And uh, those are those are all they're in order for a reason, just like the steps, just like the traditions. Um, and if you're listening to this, you've jumped ahead of it because it happens to be cur- the current day. Uh, please go back. That's fine, but make sure you go back to the very beginning and listen to these. And uh, we welcome you to get friends around and sit around the the computer and listen to the shows. Uh, the first three shows, by the way, uh, you can download those. Uh, free of charge, and then if you're interested in getting the rest of them, uh, we are compiling these together, and very, very, very soon we will have these ready for you uh, on an audio DVD, and uh, because we want to make sure that they have that available for you guys, and it's going to be, now here's over 30 shows, my friends, it's only going to be $25, and that's unheard of. You go somewhere, Chris, and uh, get a bunch of speaker tapes or whatever, and they come in those big cases. If you had 30 CDs in there, how much do you think somebody would pay for that? It'd be about 160 bucks. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's well worth it, my friends. And uh, it, it goes to uh, the finances aren't really going in our pocket per se. It's going to to help the afflicted and affected, and, and take 12 radio to stay on the air, broadcasting to you. The quality of recovery broadcasting. Right, Chris? Absolutely. <laughs> quality and quantity. Yeah, there you go. So where are we at, my friend? <clears throat> Monty, we're, at, uh, we're about halfway down page 130 uh, of the big book, and we're on the chapter, The Family Afterward. We have covered so much, and so often the, the last four chapters of the book kind of go unnoticed uh, in, in big book workshops or where people are studying the book. And there's such a wealth of information, uh, attitudes, outlooks, instructions, uh, spiritual principles and practices. There's, there's such a wealth of, uh, of information that you can transmit into a positive experience in your life or mm-hmm. the lives of others uh, that it's really a shame that it, it gets overlooked. So, you know, when we, when we decided to do this, Monty, we both kind of decided to pay some attention to, to these, uh, these forgotten chapters. Right. And the chapter to the family afterward is, is very, very profound. I mean, uh, currently in this day and age, people are just coming to the terms with how much the family has to be involved in one's recovery. <clears throat> For many, many years, people thought that the alcoholic needs to go off, get treatment, come back, and be a better man. 
Uh, and, you, you know, every study that's done as, as uh, professionals in addiction treatment uh, get more and more experience, they, they understand that to some degree the family has become ill along with uh, the alcoholic. And sure. Bill, Bill was so far-seeing. He was so uh, perceptive. He, you know, he saw these things in the family, and he, and he understood they needed to be addressed. And we really just are coming to terms, I think, with how much they need to be addressed. You will now find interventionists and you will now find treatment centers that will not accept you as a client unless your family is willing uh, to participate in the recovery process. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's really just starting to happen now uh, in, in a large, large scale way. So that's how much that's how much importance people are, are, are putting on, uh, you know, on on family involvement and recovery. I'm going to start reading about halfway down here. Um, it says one more suggestion: whether the family has spiritual convictions or not, they may do well to examine the principles by which the alcoholic member is trying to live. They can hardly fail to approve these simple principles, though the head of the house still fails somewhat in practicing them. Nothing will help the man who is off on a spiritual tangent so much as the wife who adopts a sane spiritual program, making a better practical use of it. Again, we talked about this last week. Uh, if you really, really want to help the alcoholic in your family, well, this book is basically saying that probably the best thing you can do is start to work a spiritual program yourself. Mm -hmm. Start to practice these steps. Uh, engage in a, in, a, in a recovery fellowship, maybe a family groups or or. or uh, Families Anonymous or something like that. Uh -huh. That will that will be about the best thing that you can do. And you know what? Uh, a lot of times you're going to have to take that on faith because you're not going to understand why you have to do all this stuff when he's sick. You just need to take it on faith that the, the family has become ill. And when one person in the family really starts to recover, um, what what happens is you know it sets it sets in motion certain vibrations throughout the family that make it conducive to other people doing so um, as as well and and again you're going to get a lot of resistance from the families usually uh, about well you know I'm not the one that's the problem you know I've been picking up the pieces of this guy's life or or this 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 woman's troubles for so long don't be looking at me <laughs> you know and you know the fact of the matter is 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 you you have you have most likely become very very ill being in the same vicinity of an alcoholic especially sure. if you've been living with them so um so this book suggests that you you know you start to practice some of the principles that are found in this book that they're going to be helpful to you too right there will be other profound changes in the household. Liquor incapacitated father for so many years that mother became head of the house. She met these responsibilities gallantly. By force of circumstances, she was often obliged to treat father as a sick or wayward child. Even when he wanted to assert himself, he could not, for his drinking placed him constantly in the wrong. Mother made all the plans and gave all the directions. When sober, father usually obeyed. Thus, mother, through no fault of her own, became accustomed to wearing the family trousers. Father, coming suddenly to life again, often begins to assert himself. This means trouble unless the family watches for these tendencies in each other and comes to a friendly agreement about them. I have seen this. I have seen this happen. There was a guy I was working with, uh, oh, back in the '90s, and you know what happened was he came out of uh, he came out of his blackout and he started to recover and he started to assert himself. He started to ask questions like, "Can I see the checkbook? You know, uh, where are you know what's the status of our investments? You know, you know things like that. Things mm -hmm. that the wife had taken care of for many, many years, and it exploded. She basically said, she basically said, "Look, I've been doing this for the last twenty years. All of a sudden, you're going to come come stepping in, you know, saying you want to take over like over my dead body. You know, go back down to the basement where you belong." <laughs> and yeah. where you've been for the last 20 years acting like a drunken troll and uh, <laughs> you know it, it, you know these 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 kind of things these kind of things can uh, can definitely happen I, I like i like the instruction basically to come to a friendly agreement i mean talk about it <clears throat> if you're uh, if you're you know just out of treatment and you're starting to recover and you want to pay uh you you want to want more involvement in the family you, you think it's time 
you know, you need to have a talk with the family about that. Yeah. You can't just assert yourself. I mean, you you have been looked on like like a very ill failure for 20 years. All of a sudden, you're going to have an attitude like you know better than all, all these yeah. other people. There really needs to be a transitional period. And that's like uh, the, the husband that says, oh, you know, okay, for the first time in, in years, says, all right, everybody's getting up early Sunday and you're going to church. You know, <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, um, uh, you can be a little bit crazy in yeah. early Friday. I mean, you're you're waking up brain cells that haven't been haven't been turned on in years, and mm-hmm. you can be acting a little bit nutty. Uh, just you know, try to do no harm. Try to try to keep things cool. Try not to have arguments start. Try to stay out of things. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. uh, try to stay out of controversy and and you know uh, conflict as best you can because you really are convalescing. You really are. And you're going to be convalescing, especially, you know, in your family role for quite a while. Yeah. Drinking isolates most homes from the outside world. Father may have laid aside uh, for years of all normal activity, clubs, civic duty, sports. When you're drinking a quart of whiskey a day, Monty, you don't have a lot of time for PTA meetings, you know, <laughs> and, and charity drives. i got to tell you, I never came out of a blackout once heading up a charity drive. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> when he renews interest in such things, a feeling of jealousy may arise. The family mm-hmm. may feel they hold a mortgage on Dad so big that no equity could be left for outsiders. Instead of developing new channels of activity for themselves, mother and children demand that he stay home and make up the deficiency. You know, there is a huge amount of amends that, that need to take place. Uh, both direct and living amends need to be taken care of with, within the family unit uh, by the alcoholic or the addict who, you know, who is, who's practicing recovery principles. Absolutely. But that does not mean that if your family says you're staying here every night, <clears throat> that you should do so. Uh, you're, you know, you, if you don't... Um, Become consistent at fellowship meetings. Practice the steps with a sponsor and find service commitments outside of your house. You're probably going to relapse. And so the choice needs to be, um, the choice needs to be, I need to find uh, a certain type of balance with, with uh, you know, my, my recovery process and my family, <clears throat> or else I'm going to lose both. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, you know, we need to be as, as compassionate as possible with our family, but that does not mean uh, acquiescing to uh, you know being at home all the time and 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 having our schedule tied up completely with family stuff all the time. Not if we're recovering from alcoholism. The treatment for alcoholism is action, and if we if we don't have time to engage in that action, you know we're not we're not treating our alcoholism. If we're not treating our alcoholism, God can't do God's job, and what happens is a relapse. So there, there has to be, you know, there has to be sensible balance. And doesn't it have uh, to be that way, uh, and vice versa too. I mean, if we're going to three meetings a day, every single day for the last six months, and our family <laughs> is suffering, I mean, part of our recovery is learning how to be productive members of our family as well. Balance, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there was this old there was this old timer in one of the fellowship meetings that I, I used to go to a million years ago. Everybody looked up to this guy because he had, he gave great share. You know, he sat there with a cigar. This is back when there were still smoker meetings. That there was a cigar going. You know, kid, let me tell you, kid, you gotta take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. And you know, I mean, everybody loved this guy because he just gave great one liners and. You know, <clears throat> one-liners are not an effective defense against alcoholism, by the way. But uh, everybody loved this guy because he was fun to listen to, mm-hmm. and, and people looked up to him as an icon in this particular support group. Now, one day uh, he criticized somebody in the meeting, and and uh, and the guy went right back after him, saying, "Saying, you know, how about your fan? How about your family life? You know, I see I see you at a meeting every single night for the last twenty years." Have you ever taken your wife out to the movies? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, he, just went, he just went after this old timer with, with 30 years. And uh, the guy was right. I, I mean, the guy was right. You, you, can't, you can't hide out in the meetings where it's all comfy cozy. Uh, <clears throat> the whole point of recovery is being able to get back out there in the world and, and to do the things you need to do 
where you need to do them and with you, with, with whom you need to do them with. Yeah, I mean that's really the whole point of this. Sure. Uh, you know, do we need do we need meetings? Yes. Do we need to to, to be uh, spending time on service commitments? Yes. But not at, you know not absolutely one hundred percent. That 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 would not be practicing uh, a balanced program. <clears throat> At the very beginning, the couple ought to frankly face the fact that each will have to yield here and there if the family is going to play an effective part in the new life. Father will necessarily spend much time with other alcoholics, but this activity should be balanced. Here we go. New acquaintances who know nothing of alcoholism might be made and thoughtful consideration given to their needs. The problems of the community might engage attention. Though the family has no religious connections, they may wish to make contact with or take membership in a religious body. Alcoholics who have derided religious people will be helped by such contact. Being possessed of a spiritual experience, the alcoholic will find he has much in common with these people, though he may differ with them on, on many matters. If he does not argue about religion, he will make new friends and is sure to find new avenues of usefulness and pleasure. He and his family can be a bright spot in such congregations. He may bring new hope and new courage to many a priest, minister, or rabbi who gives his full, gives his all to minister to our troubled world. Now, 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 Monty, you, you've got some some personal experience with this. Sure. I, I mean, you make a great church member because of your spiritual experience and because and because of your because of your experience and your spiritual awakening and the places you've been and where God is taking you now. Yeah. I, I mean, isn't that true? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We intend the foregoing as a helpful suggestion only. So far as we are concerned, there is nothing obligatory about it. Uh, as non-denominational people, we cannot make up others' minds for them. Each individual should consult his own conscience. You know, where where, where I found a lot of uh, a lot of real comfort in, you know, in my life, um, I, th- I think this, the steps the steps basically are spirituality 101. Mm-hmm. If you want to take it up to the master's level, you know there are things that you 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 can you can do. There are people you you can study. Uh, there, are, there are places that you can go to participate. Uh, and, and I find the people that are really working a spiritual program find those things. Many it seems people, to be it seems to be true. Many yes, people ends up end up in church as really good members. Many people end up studying spiritual material. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things that I've done. I've got a library of spiritual material. I find I find great comfort in it. Don't you think? You know, uh, I, don't you think, Chris, that that when we're doing this thing and we're really doing it the way it's laid out, we become hungry for that stuff. It becomes it becomes comforting to us to engage in it. Yeah, you know, that that's the way I would put it. Um, uh, many psychiatrists and many many spiritual masters always talk about the God-shaped hole inside us. Mm-hmm. You know, our soul will not be at rest until it rests within God's hands. Mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, um, uh, I think Saint Francis said that or something. And you know, those are those are very very true s- statements. There's a uh, until we find a wholeness through spiritual practice, we're going to not be whole. And you know, many, many people are gonna are gonna move into um, a religious practice. They're gonna move into spiritual practices, and they will, and they should. And this book basically suggests that it's a good idea. It says that you know, to be an Alcoholics Anonymous member or to work these steps, you don't necessarily have to. Right. But uh, but you're probably gonna be uh, driven to it. You're probably gonna be led to it. We have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We've been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect, but we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. Now, those are, those are some great promises. Those are some great uh, statements of hope. Um, I, I've, I've got to tell you, the people that get through these steps, Monty, absolutely insist on enjoying life. Yeah. And there's a lot of joy and fun in their existence. There just really is. And every once in a while, if you, you, know, if you find a group where it's just uh, a complaint session or one person complaining about the misery of their life after the other, 
that's not what we're that's not what we're supposed to be aiming at. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if the newcomer is really an important part of uh, your support group's mission, it's it's uh, uh, you're under an obligation to be providing an atmosphere where they see joy and where they see fun and then where they see people enjoying life. And I'll tell you what, if you have no joy, fun, or, or uh, you're not, you know, you're not in, in really enjoying your life, you, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. There is a huge problem with, uh, with your spiritual condition, and you need to go back and do the steps, because you obviously haven't done them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really what I would say. Mm-hmm. And people think, a lot of, lots of people think they have, because they've been, quite frankly, they haven't been taught what really is going on in this book. What I saw a lot of uh, around my area, basically in the 90s, is people that went to step meetings, like, like you know, uh, very consistently, really thought that they had worked the steps because they went to a lot of step meetings. And nothing, nothing is further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what I found at step meetings, basically, is there, there are a lot of people that talk about the steps, um, share about the steps, think about the steps, philosophize the step, about the steps, give their opinion about the steps. Rarely do I see anybody in those meetings that have ever really done them. You know, it, it's uh, the, the step book, although it's a great, great book, really, really was uh, very, very damaging uh, to the course of Alcoholics Anonymous when it was printed because it took the focus off the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, all of a sudden, step meetings popped up everywhere. Right. And, and instead of going to big book meetings or, or big book beginner meetings uh, or speaker meetings where someone ha- who had some real experience was sharing, uh, they started to go to step meetings thinking that that was working their program. And uh, that's been one of the most damaging things mm-hmm. uh, to yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous in the last 40 years that I can, I can say. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. When we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. And the first aid is, is, is you know, basically, you know, working, uh, trying to engage him in the steps, you know, getting him to the decision. Uh, um, placing what we have at his dis- disposal is, is basically showing them how we have worked through the steps and encouraging them and helping them to do so also. Mm-hmm. For his sake, we do recount and almost relive the horrors of our past. But those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overwhelmed, overwhelmed by them. You know, I want, I want to share a personal experience about that last sentence. Uh, there was a period of time where I was saying yes to everyone that was asking me. And I was making some waves in some, some of the support groups that were in my area. Uh, you know, I, I, was, I was sharing a solution, and that, and that went contrary to most people sharing their problems. So people would, would come up to me and, and basically say, you yeah, know, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. Would you, would you uh, work with me? And I was saying yes to everybody. And, and there was a period of time where, uh, where I, I truly, truly had about five complete psychotics that I was working with and uh-huh. a whole bunch of other people who were, who were just conniving and hustling and leading, leading me on to believe that they were serious about all this stuff, but really just using me as cover so that they could say, you know, Chris is the guy I'm working with. Uh-huh. And it got to a point where I basically had an emotional breakdown. Uh, I mean... You know, my, you know the, the the guy who was working with me, my uh, my advisor pulled me out of the mix, and basically said, you know, uh, I, I don't want you working with anybody. I don't want you uh, picking up anybody else. I want you to just calm down and concentrate on yourself for a while. You're you're at your wit's end. Mm-hmm. And really, the mistake I had made, Monty, was uh, I didn't qualify the people thoroughly enough, and I didn't give them uh, instructions. Uh, and then hold them accountable. And basically, what I did was, if they were going going to meetings, you know, if they were calling me, if if they were telling me that they were busy doing the things I was asking them to do, I kind of let them slide. And really, I, I wasn't holding them accountable. I, I, you know, they weren't doing the work. They right. weren't getting through the steps. Uh, they were they were you know just pillaging the fellowship meet- meetings for whatever they could get, mm. and and I shouldn't have been working with them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I learned I learned from those mistakes. You know, uh, uh, they're they're 
you know, their motivation was not to have a spiritual experience uh, and recover from alcoholism. Their motivation was to get out of the jackpot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. I've worked with people like that as as well, and uh, it exhausted me, man. You know, and if you really look closely at the chapter working with others, and you, if you follow that as, a, as those principles as guiding, you're not going to get into that kind of trouble. That's right. You know, the, the, you know, you'll, you'll qualify somebody right out the door right away. Listen, we're not on a membership drive as people taking people through the steps. We want we want to work with the people who uh, who are willing to do these things. Mm-hmm. We can't help the people that are not willing. Yeah. Yes, we can encourage them to not drink, but we can't offer them recovery if they're not willing to go through these steps. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. You know, you'll be in a, you'll be in a meeting, and you know somebody will say, "Yeah, they, I got I backed over a nun," and you know the, the whole meeting, ah, "You ran over a nun." <laughs> I mean, if if you were sharing that kind of thing at the Rotary Club, maybe, <laughs> you know, you, you would ask to leave. Uh, <laughs> we sometimes we have a very very tragic sense of humor. Yeah, kind of morbid, you know. <laughs> kind of morbid, but, yeah. but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered with an ED and have been given the power to help others. Uh, so absolutely, you know, I laugh a lot. I, listen, I take my, my, I, I take my program very seriously, Monty. I take, yeah. I take my working with others seriously. I, I, take the, I take a lot of things in my life seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. And, it, and if, I, if I can't find some humor sometimes in things, you know where is the joy? Where where is the uh, you know where are we going to find the joy in life? But there has there has to be you know some fun in all this, or uh, I wouldn't want it. Yeah. You know, you know one of the things one of the things that's really really tragic is you'll go up to an alcoholic who's brand new and you'll and you'll say, okay, kid, you just got to put the plug in the jug. You just got to not drink one day at a time. And, and a lot of times the newcomer is saying, no, no, no. Listen, alcohol did something for me. It's tearing my life up, but it takes away the terror. It allows me to leave the house. You know, if you're going to tell me to just stop drinking, what else are you going to give me? What else is there here? You know, mm. you can't just tell me not to drink. I've tried that. You can't just tell me not to just to put the plug in the dr- jug. I've tried that. The terror comes back. I'm not able to function. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. Uh, I'm remorseful. I can't stand myself. You, you know, isn't there something else here? If all you got is not drinking, you can have it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times that's really the the unsaid attitude of the newcomer, mm-hmm. and we we have to be better at painting the picture of recovery. We can't just put twelve promises up on the wall and leave it at that. We, you know, we need to do a better job of showing that there is joy in life, showing that there is recovery, showing that your quality of life is going to get better every single year you're with us. You know, so stay with us. En- enough do a people. Better job at all that. Uh, enough people have already told us to quit drinking. Yeah, well, I knew. I, you know, <laughs> duh. And the, the first drink gets you drunk. Well, 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 duh. I know that I can't get drunk if I don't take the first drink. How do you not take the first drink? You know, how do you do that? Because because every time I make a decision to do that, it doesn't work. So I must be different than you. This place must not be what I need. This isn't going to work for me. That's what a lot of newcomers are going to think if you just tell them to put the plug in the jug. We need to do a better job at explaining what this thing is all about. Everyone knows that those in bad health and those uh, everyone knows that those in bad health and those who seldom pray do not laugh much. To let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. We are sure we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. But it is clear that we made our own misery. 
This is about the fifth time this book says all of our problems are of our own making. We're responsible for all of it. God didn't do it. And again, this was a mistake I made. You know, I thought, if there's an all-powerful God, Monty, Mm -hmm. he he must hate me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, because look at my life. And the fact of the matter is, is every one of us has to come to terms in our our own way with our own spiritual beliefs. But the belief that I came to is, you know, uh, God was offering me a path. I just wasn't paying attention to it. I learned in Sunday school how to act. You know, yeah. I just chose. I just chose to ignore those spiritual principles and act selfishly and self-centered. You know that that's what brought on my misery. You know, God did not do it. God offered up uh, a path for me. What, really early on, I just decided uh-huh. to ignore it. Yeah, sure. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery. <laughs> but if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate His omnipotence. That, that's a great statement right that there. That is trouble awesome. Comes to you. Financial that... trouble. You know, if, if any kind of trouble comes, getting through it is going to demonstrate that the power of God is working through you. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in meetings, well, you know, I here I go again, and, and I know that these problems are of my own making, Period. Period, and they and they don't go any further, and 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 certainly not to uh, uh, cheerfully capitalize uh, it as an opportunity to demonstrate, <laughs> uh, you know, God. That's for sure. And it's like, well, why are you stopping at that? I mean, if you know you're that miserable, and you know this is of your own making, and you and you're admitting that God didn't do it. Do you not want to recover? And I think there are folks, Chris, that simply don't want to. There are people that don't want to. There are people that are unconvinced that this will, this path will help them. Yeah. And you know there you know there there are people who are constitutionally incapable. You know they they suffer from real real severe you know mental difficulties. But what I get tired of is the people that come up and say, you know, I'm doing it again. I'm doing it again. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yes, you do know what to do. You know that these steps work. You know that your character defects, it takes some part. There needs to be a certain type of participation for the removal of your character defects. And you're not participating. You're not working the step. You're not inventorying it on a constant basis. You're not admitting it to your to your fellows. You're not making amends for 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 the the for the you know, the, the harms that you continue to cause. Don't tell me you don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, the first meeting you ever go to, they read how it works. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me you don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, it, it, why, why don't you just say, why don't you just say I'm lazy and I'm obstinate and, uh, you know, I refuse, I refuse to take the, take the castor oil because I don't like the taste. And I'm going to suffer the consequences. It's all—it's my responsibility. You know, why, you know, say something like that. That's closer to the truth than I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> now about health: a body, a body badly burned by alcohol does not often recover overnight. Nor do twisted thinking and depression vanish in a twinkling. Remember that uh, that Bill suffered from depression. depression he yeah. would definitely be diagnosed with clinical depression if uh, if they had such things back in the fifties. There were many days when Bill Wilson himself could not get out of bed. He would pull the covers over his head and he would not leave his bedroom. A lot of the writing of the twelve and twelve took place during those periods of depression. By the way, hmm. when he could not get out of bed, he would have Lois bring him a pad and pencil, and he, you know he'd, he'd do his writing in bed. I mean, he suffered from unbelievably powerful depression. Yeah. He started to get involved with, uh, with, with LSD. He started to get involved with vitamin B therapy to, to, try, to try to help some of, this, some of this depression. And really, you know, one story I hear, and I, I can't corroborate this, but it came from somebody that I respect a whole lot. Basically, the story was this. Uh, Dr. Bob pushed up on him one time, sometime, you know, sometime, uh, or I'm sorry, it wasn't Dr. Bob, it was some of Dr. Bob's people out in Akron pushed up on him and said, Bill, why don't you go through the steps again? When was the last time you went through the step? 
and and he was able to to practice some of the principles and get out of his depression. Now, now I o- I've only heard that from one source. I usually don't like to quote something that only comes from one source, but um, but there's at least a lesson in it, even if it's not true. There's truth in it. Mm-hmm. Because I know a lot of people, a lot of people come up to me who've been around and been sober for a million years, and, and their life just completely, is completely in the toilet, and they ask to go through the work again, because they know that there's some power in this work. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who, you know, uh, uh, went through the work at 20 years, 30 years, whose, you know, whose lives started to take off at that point. So, um, so, so anyway, um, and, a, and a body badly burned. Personally, I suffered from such malnutrition. The only calories I was getting was from alcohol for the last five years of my drinking. I rarely ate, and when I did, I would eat like a bacon sandwich or something. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, horrible, horrible health practices. And what happened to me was I stayed at about 135 pounds for about five years. Wow. Before my body started to heal and I started to gain weight. I'm at around 195 now. You know, uh, I probably could lose a couple of pounds, but but uh, I'm much more. You know, I I was I was emaciated mm. when I first first came in, and mm-hmm. it was you know I I was just you know there wasn't any any anything there, and uh, it took a while. It really it took a while. So the the body can take a lot longer than the mind or the spirit to recover. Mm-hmm. We are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is the most powerful health health restorative. It was for me. Yeah. We who have recovered from serious drinking are miracles of mental health. But we have seen remarkable transformations in our bodies. Hardly one of our crowd now shows any mark of dissipation. But this does not mean that we disregard human health measures. God has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners of various kinds. Do not hesitate to take your health problems to such persons. Most of them give freely of themselves that their fellows may enjoy sound minds and bodies. Try to remember that though God has wrought miracles among us, we should never belittle a good doctor or psychiatrist. Their services are often indispensable in treating a newcomer and in following his case afterward. Now, one of the things that, uh, that I do for a living, Monty, and as, as you well know, is um, uh, I basically do a webcast. Uh, with addiction professionals, many of them psychiatrists, many of them doctors, uh, almost all of them uh, professionals in addiction and alcoholism treatment. And so what, what I say comes from, you know, the combined experience of many of them. With, with the changes in, uh, in mental health today, the pharmaceutical companies are really, really pushing and marketing at, at a heavy, heavy rate, a lot of different medications. And it, and I still believe that there are good doctors and good psychiatrists. Don't get me wrong. But if, you have, if you're a newcomer and you get sober and you go to a doctor or psychiatrist prior to going through the steps, you are going to be presenting with symptoms that mimic... Uh, uh, or are even actual, you know, situational depression, anxiety, uh, sociopathic behavior. You're you're gonna you're gonna present with a myriad of psychiatric uh, issues. Okay, that may just be untreated alcoholism. I agree. May just be your spiritual condition is in just such, in the toilet so bad that you look like you're manic depressive. You you could you could come off with a hundred diagnoses from a hundred different doctors. Okay. You need to, uh, if you are going to go see a doctor or a psychiatrist, I highly recommend going to one with an ASAM approval, American Society of Addiction Medicine. I highly recommend going to somebody who specializes in the treatment of addictions. I do, because uh, a good, uh, a doctor or a psychiatrist treats the symptoms that present. And they're not going to know the difference between actual uh, psychological problems and uh, psychological problems that are stemming from your alcoholism, even if you tell them a lot of times they're not going to. So if you're working with me, uh, I'm going to want you to go through the steps. I'm going to want to see what gets treated spiritually. uh, And then if problems still arise, let's let's go see the professionals. 
Okay. Now, if you go through treatment, uh, a lot of professionals will be right there with you from the very beginning, and a lot of them have been treat understand the treatment of addictions and understand that abstinence from all drugs is preferable to maintenance on some drugs, uh, and you're going to be in good hands. But you can't just go to your family doctor five minutes after you got sober because what's going to happen is they're going to prescribe 35 different drugs to you that you may or may not need. You don't know yet. You mm -hmm. know, you, mm -hmm. you haven't recovered yet. You know what I'm saying? And the big danger, the big danger there is, is you, you go in, and I've seen this happen. I know, I'm sure you have too. You go in, they diagnose you, let's say, with bipolar disorder, uh, maybe even schizophrenia. I mean, I knew people that were so uh, just their bodies just soaked with alcohol that they were hallucinating. They were talking to themselves the whole nine yards. You go in there, and let's take bipolar for instance, and they start giving you medication for bipolar disorder and you still haven't detoxed from alcohol. And after you have detoxed from alcohol and you've been in the program and now you're all medicated up and with medicine that you didn't need and now you've got a what they call the accidental addict. Now you're addicted to um, a fixer or an anti uh, antidepressant of some kind. Uh, and now we have a whole nother mess. You know, what I, what I see is probably half the people, half the guys I've ever worked with have been uh, irresponsibly diagnosed with bipolar. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, some of, them, some of them had clinical bipolar yeah. and, and have, have uh, been able to recover with that bipolar uh, and continue to stay on medication. But if you, if you ask some of the experts or if you look at some of the statistics, you'll see that alcoholics are about as uh, likely to have bipolar disorder as normal non-alcoholics. Okay, so look at the amount of people in your support group meeting who are on meds for bipolar. You're going to probably find 30% of them. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, if, if the statistics are correct, a huge majority of them have been misdiagnosed. Okay? Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's just a fact. That, that these are the, the professionals that do it are operating to the best of their ability. They are treating symptoms that present in these individuals, and they're treating them appropriately. It's not the doctor's fault. It's the, it's the alcoholic's fault for, not go, for going to them too quick or for not, uh, not checking to see if they really have very, very serious experience with addictive illness. The, the doctors that have really serious uh, experience with addictive illness will know that these 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 are not symptoms of bipolar. They're symptoms of spinning dry. Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, so it's uh, you know it's it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem out there uh, because once you've become you know once once a doctor has told you you're bipolar, you know you you're going to tend to believe that. But I am telling you, 50 percent of the people I work with have found that they weren't. You know, after they worked a recovery process and then had to wean themselves off the drug, mm -hmm. you know, and, and again, I don't know that there's anyone to blame. I think the blame, if, if at all, it needs to go on the alcoholic or the sponsor or the spiritual advisor. You just need to be careful and you, you need to understand that you are, you know, if you're in your first 30 days and you haven't worked the steps, you are supposed to be depressed. Yeah. <laughs> You are supposed to have high levels of anxiety. You are, you are supposed to have terror. You're supposed to have, have depression and, and remorse and guilt and, and resentment. That's what you're supposed to have. That's part of, part of uh, your illness. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and you don't treat alcoholism with bipolar medication. You treat alcoholism with a spiritual recovery process. You know, so it's 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 a complicated thing, and uh, you know, many people are going to get it wrong. They're going to continue to get it wrong for years to come, unfortunately. But what we can do as uh, experienced sponsors or spiritual advisors is, you know, we can we can try to explain to these people how your unmanageability presents, how your untreated alcoholism is supposed to present, and what the treatment for it is in, in you know in the twelve step recovery modality. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not doctors. We can't really tell whether someone is clinically anything, you know, as a sponsor or a spiritual advisor. 
So, you know, when in doubt, go to a good doctor, go to a good psychiatrist, but go to one who's, you know, who specializes in addiction treatment. Yeah. Don't, don't go to, you know, don't go to the yellow pages, for God's sake. <laughs> and it might mean some travel. It might mean, you know, 400 miles to go see your psychiatrist. You know, that's just too bad. You, you, you know, you need to do this responsibly or else you are going to be in real trouble. Sometimes... Sometimes if you get prescribed heavy enough medications, lithium and stuff like that, sometimes if you get prescribed that, you know, uh, incorrectly, it's going to interfere with your spiritual recovery process. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been up on my high horse, and, and I want everybody to know I'm not a doctor, not a psychiatrist. <laughs> I have no professional expertise in this. I only know what I see and what I've experienced and the experience of the people that I've worked with. That's, that's all, <laughs> all I know. Okay. Okay. And, you know, I listen to a lot of the professionals. So not all of, uh, you know, what I just said is, is you know, non-professional. A lot of it, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that, I, that I've talked to, uh, some, of the, some, of the, uh, some of the people you've had on your show will say the same thing that I just said. Yep. Anyway, one of the many doctors who had the opportunity of reading this book in manuscript form told us that the use of sweets was often helpful, of course, depending upon a doctor's advice. He thought all alcoholics should constantly have chocolate available for its quick energy value at times of fatigue. He added that occasionally uh, in the night a vague craving arose which would be satisfied by candy. Many of us have noticed a tendency to eat sweets and have found this practice beneficial. That's fine for early recovery, but they are finding a high level of diabetes associated with alcoholism because of the amount of sugar in alcohol. So you need to also be careful there. You, You need to, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't go crazy and just eat candy. Okay, here we go. A word about sex relations. Alcohol is so sexually stimulating that some, uh, to some men that they have overindulged. Couples are occasionally dismayed to find that when drinking is stopped, the man se- tends to be impotent. Um, you know, I've never found anybody admitting to that, Monty, <laughs> any of the guys I know. But l- let's say for a minute that it's true. Uh, unless the reason is understood, there may be an emotional upset. Some of us have had this experience only to enjoy in a few months a finer intimacy than ever. There should be no hesitancy in consulting a doctor or psychologist if the condition persists. Uh, we do not know of many cases where this difficulty lasted long. You're in shock, you know, your first 30 days mm-hmm. over a lot of times, and, you know, your body's not going to be reacting normally. So, right. you know, just don't don't worry about some of that stuff. Uh, Uh, Keep your priorities on meeting steps and service. The alcoholic may find it hard to reestablish friendly relations with his children. Their young minds were impressionable while he was drinking. Without saying saying so, excuse me, they may cordially hate him for what he has done to them and to their mother. The children are sometimes dominated by a pathetic hardness or cynicism. They cannot seem to forgive and forget. This may hang on for months, long after their mother has accepted dad's new way of living and thinking. I've seen children who haven't talked to their to, to their mother or father for ten years mm-hmm. because of what happened during uh, during their their alcoholism. Uh, that's rough. So, it's it's not up to you when they forgive you. Yeah, uh, you you need to make direct amends as best as possible, and then try to uh, establish living amends and be a, the best father you can be, the best family member. But you can't rush their their forgiveness. You can ask for it, but you can't rush it. Mm-hmm. In time, they will see that he is a new man, and in, in their own way, they will let him know it. When this happens, they can be invited to join in morning meditation, and then they can take part in the daily discussion without rancor or bias. From that point on, progress will be rapid. Marvelous results will often follow such a reunion. Remember, in Step 11, it talked about morning meditation. Yeah. Okay, prayer and meditation. They expect, at this point in time, the father is doing it and has convinced the wife to do it, or vice versa. Uh, if the children uh, are still mad at Dad, they're not sitting in on morning meditation. Mm-hmm. But when they forgive Dad, they should. The morning meditation is a family practice. That's what they're recommending. Now, is it absolutely essential to have the entire family do the, the morning meditation and evening review with you? No, not necessarily, but they're, they're, they're expecting that you've asked them to do so and you've encouraged them to do so at least a little bit. That's one of the most forgotten things today, I think, I think in, in the 12-step programs, uh, fellowships, is uh, the morning meditation, the evening review. Mm-hmm. A, a majority of members don't do it. We talk but a lot about it, little, but we don't do it. 
What's that? We we talk about you know waking up in the morning and then going to bed at night. I hear it all the time, uh, but truth be known, you know how many of us use the excuse? Well, I don't have time. I got to get to work. I got to blah blah blah. And at night, I'm just too tired, man. <laughs> I pray when I'm in the car commuting to work in the morning. Yeah, that's well, right. Well, let me tell you something. No, no, okay. exactly. It should be about the business of driving yeah. that car because I might be on the road too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do do the do the prayer and the meditation with uh, with God, and if the family will 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 do it, do it too. But you know, don't tell me you're you're doing the eleven step while you're driving to work, please. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Whether the family goes on a spiritual basis or not, the alcoholic member has to if he would recover. You know, remember they used to say the morning meditation and evening review were essential. Meetings, meetings were desirable. I mean, that's how much importance uh, the early AAs put on uh, that practice. The alcoholic member has to, uh, if he would recover, uh, live life on a spiritual basis. The others must be convinced of his new status beyond the shadow of a doubt, seeing as believing to most families who have lived with a drinker. Here is a case in point. One of our friends is a heavy smoker and coffee drinker. There was no doubt he overindulged. Seeing this and meaning to be helpful, his wife commenced to admonish him about it. He admitted that he was overdoing these things, but frankly said that he was not ready to stop. His wife is one of those persons who, who really feels there is something rather sinful about these commodities, so she nagged, and her intolerance finally threw him into a fit of anger, and he got drunk. Of course our friend was wrong, dead wrong. He had to painfully admit that and mend his spiritual fences. Though he is now on a, uh, a most effective member of Alcoholics Anonymous, he still smokes and drinks coffee, but neither his wife nor anyone else stands in judgment. Remember that as this, this is being written, Bill Wilson chain-smoked and drank 45 cups of coffee a day. <laughs> okay. In this day and age of health consciousness, we understand that smoking and drinking coffee, uh, overindulging in either one of them, is really, really a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I want to quote a statistic here, Monty. If I haven't quoted it before, I'll quote it again. 52% of the people who get sober, all right, mm-hmm. let's say they come into AA and they get sober, for the rest of their lives, they're sober. Fifty-two percent of them are going to die from mis- nicotine misuse. Uh, nicotine misuse kills over half of the people that get sober in AA. Wow. Um, so, you know, did Bill know that at the time? It was only until the 50s when uh, when basically the, uh, the studies started to come out about how bad smoking actually was. You know, so you, you got to take these. You got to understand a lot of this stuff in context. He's he's writing in the '30s, where they used to have doctors do the commercials for 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 you know a doctor would say, "I smoke camels." And, yeah. You know, the doctor recommends camel cigarettes. I remember that. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember it personally, but but I remember the old Abbott and Costello, uh, uh, the old tapes I'd listened to that my dad had, and and um, they would go to commercial. And they would have doctors say that, or they would say, you know, we're, we're raising money to send cigarettes to our doctors on the war front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, more doctors recommend Chesterfield than any other cigarette. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was going on, uh, that was going on up until, you know, the time I started watching TV. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was only, I think, in the early 60s or so where they started to stop that stuff. Mm-hmm. She sees... Uh, she was wrong to make a burning issue out of such a matter when his more serious ailments were being rapidly cured. That's true. You know, um, take things in perspective. What's the most? What's the most important? The most important thing is someone is recovering from alcoholism. Don't don't nag him. Don't don't bust his chops about every little thing. You are absolutely. If that person recovers, he's going to be in the minority, and you're going to be very very lucky to not have to bury him. Mm-hmm. Like most uh, alcoholics or drug addicts, most alcoholics or drug addicts get buried way before their time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have three little mottos which are apropos. And remember, these mottos are about, in, in the context of the family unit, okay? A lot of times they throw the mottos up on the wall, and people think that following those mottos is working a program. There can't be anything further from the truth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but these mottos, in context, in, within a family unit are 
first things first, uh, live and let live, easy does it, okay? In the context of the family, um, in the context of the alcoholic, uh, first first things first, well, I don't know about you, Monty, I always did the seventh thing first. <laughs> live, live and let live, I, you know, I, I used to just get even with people is how I used to live, and easy never did nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, and so so take these mottos in the context that they were laid out, and they've basically been laid out for the family members. Um, first things first is father's alcoholism. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the first thing that he needs to do. Live and let live. You know, let him do what he needs to do to treat his alcoholism. And easy does it. Don't be don't be you know all, all over the guy about every little thing. And, uh, you know, you can expand the meaning of these, uh, of these slogans to whatever degree you, you want to. But my, you know, my thoughts on slogans basically, uh, basically is uh, that if you give a slogan to a brand-new alcoholic, he'll misuse it. Oh, yeah. He'll, he'll, basic, he'll basically say, first things first is I'm watching TV. You know, live and let live, you know, they're telling me to do all this stuff. I'm doing it my way. And easy does it means, you know, I'm not going to be getting a sponsor today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, i got to take it easy. So, so again, I'm not a huge, huge fan of the slogans. People have found marvelous benefits in, you know, remembering them and trying to apply whatever principles they have toward those slogans. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've done enough work with newcomers to know that they're more harmful than helpful in most cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And I, 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 there's a gentleman, bless his heart, he's been sober 30-some-odd years, and it's really, I, I have to chuckle. Uh, he's a great guy, but he always says, you know, I don't read the book, and I've never done the steps, and, uh, you know, if you'll just read the stuff on the walls around here, you'll have a pretty good chance. <laughs> well, you know, you only know what you only know. You only know what you only know. He, he's probably a heavy drinker and thinks he's an alcoholic, and uh, you know that that is as as it should be. But but the program of recovery is not a program of slogans; it's a program of steps. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and uh, you know we we would be we would do well to remember to remember, remember that. that. And of course, there's going to be cranky old timers who've never done the steps. And, sure. And you know when you know when it comes to somebody sharing their real experience on a step, they're going to say, "Kid, you know if they would if they would have told me I would have had to do all them steps, you know I I I'd have been right out of here. You know what you got to do? You just got to not drink it. You just got to come to these meetings. And that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that is that's what they did, and, yeah. and that works for them. And there's there's nothing really wrong with that, except that their alcoholism uh, is is at a at a state of it's either heavy drinking or it's a mild case of alcoholism, because if uh, if a real alcoholic, if a hopeless alcoholic tries that, they're going to fail at it. And a lot of times the real damage that's done is the old-timer doesn't understand the scale of alcoholism and doesn't understand he's way up on the scale. He's not a low-bottom alcoholic. Low-bottom alcoholics have a whole, you know, they're going to need to approach this thing in a whole other way, you know, besides the way he's doing it. And a lot of times these guys have been around 20, 30, 40 years, and you can't tell them nothing. No, you can't. They, They think it because they did it some way that that's the way you should do it. You know, kid, it took me four years before I put pen to paper in a four-step. And I think anybody that puts paper, pen to paper before four years, they, you know, they haven't even, they haven't even got, gotten their head out of their behind, you know. Uh, I can't see how anybody would be able to do a decent job on a four-step before they have, like, four years. You know, that's somebody sharing, you know, their own really faulty experience thinking that, uh, that because they got away with every everybody else should and again that's that's really where the, where yeah. the uh, comes in with the slogans and the wisdom sayings and the keep it simples and all that <laughs> well we have finished up the family afterwards uh next week we're going to be in chapter 10 folks two employers and uh this is um you know, you know these chapters, uh, uh, the family a- afterwards, and uh, two wives uh, working with others, and two employers. They 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 have so much in common uh, weaved in in, in amongst themselves. Um, 
about how to uh, work with somebody, how to react to somebody, how to not react, uh, suggestions on how to get along um, to help somebody uh, promote their personal recovery and come alongside them or maybe let go. Um, they all have that, that, that same kind of thing going through them. So these are really important chapters, my friends. Again, a wealth of information. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Monty. It's been a blast. It has been a blast. Um, don't miss it, my folks. You don't want to. You just might miss something really cool. Until our next broadcast of Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder, this is the Monty Man and Chris, and we are wishing God's perfect serenity for you. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. <laughs>